I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, it's 10 years since the iconic 2012 Olympic Games in London, and it's why I'm delighted to welcome one of our greatest ever Olympians, who many see as one of the trailblazers that paved the way for the Olympians of today. Duncan Goodhue scored gold in the 100-meter breaststroke in the 1980 Moscow Olympics in a dramatic, nail-biting finish that went down to the wire. It marked a remarkable transformation for a young man who described himself as drowning during his time at school, struggling with the challenges of dyslexia. But in a story of resilience and ambition, Duncan overcame the odds to become one of the most iconic British sporting figures of the 20th century and lives by the motto, you're only as good as your worst day. Duncan, welcome to Changemakers. Hi, that's a hard thing to live up to now, Michael. You really <laughs> set the bar. Yeah, you've, you? ha- you've had the intro. You've had the gold medal intro, Duncan. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Let's start with you're, you're only as good as your worst day. You and I have, have spoken about that um, yeah. motto yeah, it, before. It, Explain it, it to, to listeners. Yeah, it, it, came, it came out of a training, I suppose. It, it, swimming training is particularly onerous because you've got two long sessions a day plus weights and stretching. I, I, I suppose there were some days I'd do 800 lengths, which is quite a lot of lengths. And if, if you start counting the, the tiles, then, uh, you, you know, you, gotta, you, you get really bored. So yeah. um, I, I, I suppose I had an epiphany at, at some point or other and realized that, you know, um, my dream of going to the Olympic Games uh, was basically one minute every four years. Um, so <laughs> That's an amazing way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, the accuracy uh, involved in performance on that. And some other bugger picked it as well. Yeah. So it wasn't even the minute you picked. It, it then uh, got me thinking of uh, if I can't have a bad day because I can't have a bad hour because I can't have a bad minute in four years, then uh, you're only as good as your worst day. Mm. That I couldn't control the minutes that I was going to swim. Um, well, well like, b- b- before we go into the, I suppose, the how you how you do make your, your worst day your best day, let's just dwell for a minute. I mean, 800 lengths a day. It wasn't every day. That, that, well, you know, I, I mean, that, that was that, that was the, the some of the worst, well, <laughs> hardest days, I should say. Well, it puts my fifth lengths twice a week into into perspective but I mean it's sort of like thinking about that and thinking about that you get that moment just once every four years in terms of the the pressure for an elite athlete you and and the people you know in terms of getting it right I mean how does the anxiety work in terms of the build-up to these major global events in terms of knowing I've just got to get it right yeah Uh, well I mean the first time I went to the Olympic Games was in 76 Montreal Olympic Games and I always remember my mother saying you know I I phoned up my mother and said uh, you know I was 18 or 19 when I got to the Olympics but when I phoned her up I was 18 and I said have you booked your tickets to the Olympic Games and and she said no I, uh, and I said why not she said well they haven't picked the team and, and I was no one from nowhere at this point but do it tracking really really well mm. uh, and I, I said to her I said mum it's not a question of whether I'm going or not it's which medal I'm going to win and she said don't be so cocky <laughs> and she didn't pick the she didn't buy the tickets and she couldn't get the tickets and she didn't go so it's a great show but, but I read that when when you were um... Preparing for Montreal, you ask yourself two questions. Who me? I spill soup down my tire, trip over my shoelaces. And the next was why me out of nearly eight billion people in the world? I mean, I mean, in terms of that sort of, I suppose the answering in the affirmative, how do you mentally prepare for like these moments, which are just, you know, 
uh, must be a, an absolute pressure cauldron of of emotions and of and of ideas flying around in your own mind that that, that none of the rest of us see on the TV. Well, I, I think it's about controlling bi- uh, your biology and your mind and. Your biology, I suppose, is, 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 you know, comes back from hunter-gatherers, that um, it's a good idea to turn up at, on the prey at the same time or just behind everybody else so you don't get eaten or hurt. Right. <laughs> so so I, I think, you know, it's amazing how you, you tend to slow down when you're ahead. And, and in a sense, uh, the other point you get is if anything's new, it feels odd. If it feels odd, then you slow down. Mm. And um, in the Olympic Games, when you got billions of people watching and it's your first time up, uh, uh, as it were, it does feel uh, new and it does feel odd. And so the temptation is for the biology to do the speaking rather than you do the speaking. Mm. And then you slow down. So that's the biology side. And the mental side is, you know, how much of a scruple are you? <laughs> Do you really believe that uh, you are the best in the world? You know, there are 8 billion people on the planet and you're the one. And, and I, I suppose you've got to work uh, physically to, to counterbalance mm. the, the biology. <laughs> and then uh, psychologically, you have to work to support that. Uh, and that's about understanding what you're doing uh, and and working on it. So mm. I, I used visualization. Uh, I, I watched myself swim. I perfected everything on on how you did it. So. When I got there, it, it, it was almost a foregone conclusion. Right. So, so let's frame this in terms of advice to listeners, because the thing I'm thinking about is that I guess on the biology side, you'll be alongside other swimmers that have got, you know, fantastic sort of ability. And then there is the kind of, I suppose, the attitudinal side, which is the kind of what you're telling yourself in terms of the inner narrative. And then I suppose it's, well, what do you do on the day to actually do, to deliver on what you speak about, which is making sure that your worst day is not your worst day but happens to become your best day i mean is there is there a is there a tip is there a an advice piece that you give to listeners in terms of, well how might i do that what's the, i mean you mentioned visualization what what what's something they could that people could do well i mean uh, first of all I normalize it as much as possible and so it becomes normal it becomes like you know shaving or brushing your hair which i don't do anything like that <laughs> but so, so it's just something you get out of bed and do so it's normalizing it first mm. of all and then you know in terms of probability it's actually proving it to yourself and everybody around you so i did certain things that i made sure i swam faster than everybody else in every every race and uh, so so not only was i training hard and and coming back to the worst day it, it was very simple i was sitting at breakfast one day and i'd just been made captain of the swim team and uh, i was looking around and you know some people were having good breakfast some swimmers were, were not i kind of said what's going on here and it came really obvious that the swimmers who were having a good breakfast had a good workout and the ones that weren't having a good breakfast had a bad workout mm. so i looked at that at that cohort and all of mm. them had other things going on in their lives so you know they were they were having a 
problems with their partners or, you know, have, tr- have trouble with the university, so, whatever so, it was. So distracted, in other words. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So they, there's a connect between your physical performance and your psychological conditions um, of things spilling into the water. I thought, well, if that's happening to them, it's happening to me. Mm. And I started to monitor it. And sure enough, um, it was starting to happen to me. And so I made a rule to work my hardest on my worst days. Mm. And very quickly, I found out on my worst days, most of it was psychological. And by halfway through the workout, I'd broken through and I had such an elation from breaking through that my worst days became better than some of my best days. Mm. Now, if you're a mathematician and you work out how that impacts on the average and, and the, the, the numbers, are, are, they, they affect the numbers incredible. Your, your average suddenly goes up because uh, um, uh, to, to, you've cut the worst out and you've kept the best. And, and I, lo- I love, though, the, the personal opportunity to not accept your worst day or a bad day is just as just something that is therefore going to overwhelm you in a very negative sense. But actually, you can you can take control. And I suppose, you know, you're a very good example of that in a physical environment, in a swimming pool. But I guess people could do that in in their places of work, oh, in relationships, and in in, in in everything. But let's go from let's no, go. No, there's a really other important yeah. point in that is is it's also your best days. You you don't you don't try and work, you just enjoy it. You just do it. Yeah. You just do it. And yeah. so what you do is is God comes back into it rather than get really caning yourself on the good days you just relax and let it happen and mm. when you relax and let it happen guess what it happens. happen. it happens you're, you're well, not forcing it well, well let's go from a worst day to a really great day because one of the reasons we're speaking is because we're speaking on on the anniversary of, of the 2012 L- london olympics that you were I mean, an, an amazing i mean we'll, we'll, we'll get into that but i mean just to frame it i mean you're one of the seven legends of the games that, that kicked it off one of the ambassadors uh, the ambassador for Team GB, a torchbearer, deputy mayor for the Olympic Village. I mean, you were not just there to watch the games, but you were integrally involved in it, Duncan. I mean, and, and of course, I also think for those of us that were watching, it was one of the moments that was spine tinglingly good. It felt good. It was a feel good experience, not just for sport, of which it was un- in- undoubtedly that, but it felt much more important society-wide in terms of everything, in terms of the way we felt about the nation, the way that we felt about togetherness, the way that we felt about really just some incredible spectacle that almost caught us off guard. You know, it, 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 was, it was an amazing moment. What was it like, the other side of that? Oh, it's ju- just everything was just quite extraordinary. There, there's so many stories I could tell you. We could talk for hours on it. <laughs> and fascinating, fascinating stories. I, I think that I've always, you know, I swam for Great Britain um, because I love the country. I, I have uh, immense uh, uh, belief in what's possible for this country and everything. And I suppose the Olympic Games uh, 2012 exactly showed what we were capable of. Mm. And even today, when we look back at it, uh, it, it wasn't what we did better. It was how much better did we do than any other uh, games at everything? Mm. And there's just countless stories about how we performed uh, as a nation on design from, for instance, nobody got killed in the whole construction of the Olympic Games and all the infrastructure. That's never happened. Uh, as you say, that's a, that's, a, that's a normal occurrence, is it? People die in... Yeah, it, people die in constructions mm. and things like that. It, it didn't happen and it, and it hasn't happened since. And then you looked at, for instance... Uh, 
um, in my sport, we used to spend, say, three to four hours on a bus being passed between venues prior to, to, to our events, getting the training we needed because you couldn't all get in the Olympic facility. There were too many swimmers to be able to do that. Mm. Just a couple yeah. of minutes walk from the back of the Olympic village were, uh, I think it was eight uh, Olympic-sized temporary swimming pools that were open 24 hours a day. You didn't have to book a lane. You just wandered down for a swim. Never happened since and mm. never happened before it, it was all the detail that you couldn't believe uh, to temporary stadiums they'd never done temporary stadiums before you know that that incredible beach volleyball uh, at horse guards where you know henry the eighth used to do I, I, I went to watch it it was amazing <laughs> it was... <laughs> i bet henry the eighth would have enjoyed it too <laughs> uh, yes i think you might have i mean but, but when you compare like here we are 10 years later i mean i mean 2022 feels like a like a like a, a much gloomier year, I think, in in many ways. In terms of, I suppose, the lessons of 2012 that you take out, the things that we should you know, fight hard not to forget, to keep hold of. What, what are the what are the attitudes? What are the what are the sort of the soft, uh, more intangible things? I think that we that you say we should we should we should fight hard for right now well i i think that we're we're uniquely uh we're we have very you have a uniqueness in this country we really do and and when you look at 2012 uh, the amount of volunteers and how they uh, responded the, the way that everybody went the extra mile for, for other people to make it happen and the understanding of how important it was and uh, I, I suppose the the biggest thing that i'd take away was uh, for instance the loudest decibel uh, in the stadium uh, was in the Olympic, uh, big Olympic stadium. It wasn't the bolt final of mm. the 100 metres. It was the peacock mm. final of the 100 metres. And why was it so hard, loud? Well, it was a British crowd watching a British athlete yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, overcoming you know, all the challenges and winning. Uh, and and, and that, that bit of Britain that is there, it, is, it hasn't gone. It's still there. And, and you've, you see it time and time again throughout the country. And un, unfortunately, the news on the 24-7 now is, is, is almost making it. Is, is gloomy. I mean, I, mean, I mean, to your point, I mean, I remember interviewing you at the Maid Festival in Sheffield. And it was a marvellous, I don't know if you met 3,000 people in the City Hall and you... And you brought your gold medal along with you. And I mean, to spare your blushes, I can remember you, you took it out to show it to the audience and the response was incredible. I mean, the, the cheering, the sort of, I mean, just the symbolism of that gold medal is, is so important to us, isn't it? It's a sort of, it's a, it, it's almost like a spiritual thing, isn't it? In terms of the, the effect of sport on people and their, their self-belief and their, their sense of, of identity. I just don't get it. <laughs> I, mean, I swam too late, the taps and back, and I made it. Surprise, surprise. You know, I, I think it, it's exactly that. It, it's an arbitrary distance. It's yeah. physical. Everybody understands it, you know, and it's visceral. And, uh, you know, you look at it and go, that's easy, but it's not. <laughs> Yeah, and it brings back you know who we are. We're hunter gatherers. We love to chase things. Then we love to catch them. And then we cook them. And then we you know preem ourselves. And then we dance. 
you know, we, we are this, this, you know, we are a creature, the most extraordinary, incredibly successful creature. But, I mean, there are 8 billion of us. But I love so, the, you know, I love the, I love the modesty. And often, often you get that when you interview a lot of people that are really, really good at something and they, they just assume that that's normal, you know, but actually, but, but I mean, you did something incredible. And, and I mean, let's get in our time machine and let's go back to the 22nd of July, 1980, 42 years ago, because that was the moment you were preparing to get in that swimming pool and do something incredible. I mean, let's talk about, I suppose, the before, middle and after in terms of Duncan arriving. Let's remember 1980, Soviet Union, very different environment and era. And you're there with a job to do. Pick up the story for us. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, before I went, I, my, my stepfather was Air Vice Marshal, DSO Divot, FC Bar Twice. He was this war hero shot down 22 and a half aeroplanes. He didn't want me to go and was adamant about it. My my uh, my mother uh, went and my stepfather didn't. Um, the press were completely against us going and I had to fight to, to, to help uh, um, justify us going to Moscow. So that was before I got there. <laughs> when we got there, it was tense and um, I, I went through the you know heats and everything fine and got to the final. Uh, before you go into to the final they, there's a little call room you're called up and you you have this little room and four years before that that's when i i had a, a moment and it was yeah. lamb to a slaughter then <laughs> i i said who me why me in the middle of the waiting for it and it all went downhill after that <laughs> this this time i was ready really really prepared I, I, you know we talked about the visualization gone through all that and i went into the room and um i decided to do something really different and it was mainly for me but uh, uh, it, it had a surprising outcome, which uh, which uh, was great. I, I went into the room, and the, this room is is just, you know really small. It's really just for the eight finalists, and and, and somebody just to stand around in case there's a fight breaks out or something. I don't know. Never yeah. does. <laughs> and um, so I I went to the corner and I sat down in the corner on the ground. Now you know people when it was in a room, it's not in a room anymore. It's in a corridor. Mm. Um, they don't like to sit down because you know you're like boxing. You want limbering oh, up, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, as I sat down in the corner, it, it, it caused quite a lot of attention because I, I noticed uh, you know people looking at me. Uh, or, uh, the, these are uh, the, these big fat fit athletes from Russia, etc., looking at me. And, and as I sat, I settled myself in the corner. I, I took out a book. It was uh, it, it, it was Wilbur the, Smith. I'm not Wilbur Smith. <laughs> but it's on it's on our uh, it's on our uh, lockdown list that you uh, you provided <laughs> with us. So so obviously it was a book that made a difference. <laughs> yeah, and then and then uh, I, uh, I I opened it up and um, I had the presence of mind to check it was the right way round <laughs> and started to to read. And over the top of my book, I could see the glance rate from the seven other people in the room was too often and too yeah. frequent. And and it, I could almost visualize the uh, comic bubble coming out of their mouths saying, what's he doing? You know, doesn't he know what's going on? There's an Olympic final coming up and he's reading a book. Why is he reading a book? <laughs> and at that point, I realized that all I had to do was uh, tie my swimsuit and I'd won. And you'd won. I mean, I think Channel 4 had it down as one of its top 50 greatest ever sporting moments because it was a dramatic finish. And I mean, 
in terms of that realization that that you'd you'd become a gold medal winner i mean you suddenly go to a different sort of like stratosphere i guess duncan in terms of how, how did you feel i mean I'm, no, I was, coming it, back to that there was just a, a little thing i'd yeah. love to and then i'll catch up on that but when i came up to breathe 25 meters from mm. the end i could feel everybody beside me and i'd been injured and hadn't had proper training for some 18 weeks beforehand and as i came up to breathe all the visualization and emotionalization I'd done paid paid its dividend along with all of course the hard work. Because I heard myself saying, if you don't do something right now, Duncan, you're not going to win. You're not going and, to win. And, and, so, you know, and this is the famous chimp on the shoulder that uh, Peters wrote about, isn't it? Uh, a long time before. Uh, this was now a gorilla on my shoulder yelling. And uh, all of the hard work came together. And I said to myself, and that's totally absurd. So it was an inner monologue going on even even at this moment of incredible you know physical activity yeah and um after that i carried on going everybody fell away and i touched the end Mm. and uh you know i won by half the length uh half a body length so so it was by the time i got there it was convincing but it was all in the last 25 meters yeah i mean i mean that i mean that's that is an incredible story, and I suppose. Well, well the truth is, they yeah. let me win. Yeah, uh, and that and that's the that's the amazing thing about life is if you set it up, people like people, other people to succeed. Yeah, <laughs> so they just let them succeed. You know, oh, take the place. I, oh. I'll stay at the back. I won't get eaten by it. <laughs> but I suppose you've got, you've, got to wa- <laughs> you've got to want it, right? In terms of yeah. in terms yeah. of that twenty five meters, you've got to push yourself yeah. somewhere. Yeah. But I suppose this is why you know I was, I was thinking about um, Adam. Peter spoke about winning gold in Tokyo and he finished up taking time out because he felt the pressure of it. He felt the the whole the whole whole overwhelming experience of it. I mean, is that how it is what was it like that for you? How how what was the sort of the sensation of of being a winner and the aftermath? Well, I had a plan, which uh, you know I tend to have. You know, I had a life plan from a fairly early age, because you know, being dyslexic and losing my hair, things had to be changed, and uh, and, and I found a way of changing the deck and swimming was that mm. so it was all a progression of a life plan for me and uh, I, I'd, I'd put things in place assuming that I was going to win because that was the object of the exercise wasn't it I, I was incredibly fortunate to uh, have gone to very uh, good schools uh, which were, were, were you know challenged me in all sorts of different ways and it allowed me to grow I'd had the American University experience which was great and I had a fantastic uh, family background uh, and uh, some great brothers that support me. But one thing I will say is it, it sounds really bizarre. And my wife keeps on saying, don't say that, Duncan. It sounds, you, you mustn't say that. So I, I'm just going to risk so it. So you're going to say it. <laughs> it, it, it. It's almost as if living with success is harder than the success in its first place. And in a sense, that comes back to what Adam Peaty was saying, is that, you know, be careful what you wish for. Mm. You know, and, and I was fortunate in the fact that having lost my hair, I was stared at all the time and you know attention and and everything is great when your ego's good but if you're having you know an off day and people start to you know uh, are in your face and you're not used to it or you're shy or or those other things it can be really really hard and Mm. I often have argued and thank goodness you know um, um, sport has now become much better at it 
that preparing people for after sport or after you know success because you've got you know all these goals that uh, center into one thing and you know your whole life seems to revolve around that and suddenly it stops and you have this you lose all the support mechanisms you had with it you lose all the excuses and you become co common property as well you know you've got to understand it and and, and appreciate it and, and then actually love it in a, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, but let's let's go back to, I mean, you know, you talked about the things about, about self-confidence, about losing your hair, about being dyslexic. I mean, when you tell that story, it just feels, well, these are the challenges that I overcame. But but I know, you know, full well, because we, we've spoken about it, is that, you know, dyslexia was something that made you feel like, I, I think you've talked about feeling like you were drowning in, in in the classroom and that there were there were confidence challenges there were things that that that, that really did put you through your paces uh, early in life and, I, and I, I think it's a an interesting question because obviously was it just the swimming that that helped that, that was the lifeline or were there other things that actually helped you come to terms with who you were the challenges that you were going through and turning what some might have perceived as weaknesses into your own version of superpowers. Okay, there's a, a lot to unpack there. Uh, I mean, uh, f first of all, I, I feel sorry for people that are good at everything. Because mm. <laughs> how do you how do you choose what to be good at? Yeah. Um, I, 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 and I'm a great believer that we need contrast in our life to appreciate where we are and where we are and, and value what we have. And, and um, I got that contrast very young when I saw the difference between being good at something and not being so good at something. And, and that was in the classroom every day. So it came clear what I wasn't good at. So mm. it then became what could I be good at? The second part is that, you know, we're no, it's the old thing. None of us are islands, you know, very trite and everything. But it's absolutely true that you know, people have to give us permission. And not only do they have to give us permission, they have to give us a lot of a babysitting and support through the process of success. Mm. It, it, we need other people around us because we're a social being. And I was incredibly fortunate to have uh, amazing people throughout my life, you know, from teachers, my, my parents, my, my, my coaches. They allowed me to grow and they allowed me the space to grow. They didn't, they didn't suffocate me at all, but they supported me at, when I needed mm. it at the right times. And, and they, uh, there's one particular what stands out. I went to Millfield School and the head there who, who set up the school, the founder, was, uh, was called a boss. Everybody mm. called him the boss because uh, <laughs> he was. <laughs> he, he set up the school. And he was a very different man. And I went to an interview with Boss. And during the interview, uh, and I was, you know, 13, 12, 13 years old, he, he, he spotted that I was dyslexic. And I was sent away. Uh, and dyslexia wasn't known then. Uh, he explained to what it was, which was, a, you know, it was an eye opener to me. And I, I went and get, got assessed there on the spot. I, I was then sent down to the swimming pool. And <laughs> I, I, I was asked to do a medley. Uh, a four by one medley uh, you know that's a, you swim each of the strokes uh, by the, the the only full-time professional coach in the whole country at the time paddy garrett yeah and um <laughs> so i got in and i couldn't swim butterfly properly and, and, and just give you give you some kind of sense Sharon Davis went to the Olympic Games in Montreal at the age of 12. And I was probably 12, I was probably 13 when this happened. And I couldn't even swim butterfly. And uh, so, so I missed it out. And I landed at the end, wrong end of the pool as a consequence because I didn't put it in its place. 
So the, the coach, you know, now there was a standoff, eventually wandered down. He said, uh, you appear to be at the wrong end of the pool. Do you know why? So I tried to drown myself in embarrassment, got out. And we walked up towards boss's office and I was looking at the stitching in my shoes in absolute revulsion. And my parents were slumped and everything. And boss walks up and he takes one look at me and understands what's happened. So he then looks at the coach uh, and said, um, Paddy, will he swim for the school? Now, he, he, he then looked back at me and he'd move very close to me a little too close actually so I'm looking up and he's looking down and it's that eye to eye thing that's going on he's looking into my soul and in the background Paddy Garrett uh, says he'll swim to the school the county the district and the country and he'll probably go beyond that <laughs> the man changed my life because he gave me a chance to dream about the Olympic well, Games well it never ceases to amaze me because obviously Millfield is, is a is a school that you and I have in, in common that, that, that Paddy Garrett trained the Olympian Duncan Goodyear and the swimming no-hoper Michael Heyman. So it's a sort of like, it's a great, but I mean, there is a segue to that, which is, of course, you are big on the power of coaching in many things. I mean, you know, you, you've been involved with the Born to Coach initiative. I mean, the, the importance of, of people in terms of spotting your potential, bringing this out is, is something you, you've spoken a lot about, not, not only because of your own experiences with people like Paddy Garrett, but Tony Roberts, the legendary Dave Haller, lots of people that have had an effect on your life. I suppose if you were looking at the question of what makes a great coach, you've spoken there about, I guess it's that kind of vision that, that somebody saw something in you in terms of in terms of that that first um step but what what watch if people think about i want to get coaching in in life for business for for whatever it might be what, what what's the secret of a great coach i think the secret of a great coach is in, in between science and and uh, inspiration isn't it mm. and and that's why when you talk to coaches they they sometimes have a very jumbled philosophy because what they have to do is they have to be a chameleon they have to look at the person that they're coaching in front of them and understand that everybody they coach is going to have a different set of values and a different sense of purpose is importance to them and mm. it's recognizing that and recognizing the science bit of how do i improve them whether it's business or or, or sport or whatever because you know you have we're all humans we, we're you know we're only as good as our worst days you know we we feel grungy and horrible some days and we don't perform well as a, mm. as a comp- consequence of that so how do you get people past that and then how do you get people past the fact that they'll uh, that you know their biology is telling them to slow down because they're you know it feels a bit odd because they're ahead of everybody else mm. it, you now, know whether it's business or whatever coaches have a feeling of when not to say something as well as when to say something mm. i'm so sorry that we're out of time i'm sad about it because there's so much where i want to talk to you about but i've got two thoughts about where i might go for my last question but i think i'm going to come back to what we've been talking about which is i suppose sporting legacy and how you see the future because when you were swimming Doug. I think it was, you know, I think I think what made you exceptional was that you were one of a, a very distinct group of, I suppose, British winners at an elite level. Now that has exploded. You know, we spoke about Adam Peaty, whether it's Duncan Scott, or James Guy, Ellie Simmons. I mean, just, you know, we can, the list is, is incredible, not only in swimming, but I, I suppose across almost every Olympic discipline. When, when you look about the future, I suppose I thought about your part in that story and how you see that story developing. Well, I think I, 
first of all, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I helped somebody uh, set up the uh, national lottery and lobby for the, a guy called Dennis Vaughan. So, you know, I, I kind of feel that I had some involvement in that. But my focus in life has been more about the active world, about getting people to participate. And, you know, I, I have a business called Limelight Sports where we, we, we've been doing that for uh, 30 years. To me, you know, sport, uh, physical activity, it, it's not like buying a Mars bar and eating it is it yeah. <laughs> uh, you know it's about going out there and it's a whole journey uh, and you know uh, it's not about standing on the on the on the rostrum it's about the whole journey in between there and what you're doing how you're doing it the, the relationships you have how you learn and develop as an individual and then you know uh, how you respond to the rostrum whether it's you know second third whatever and and how you move on from that and and how that changes you and that whole you know really personal experience how do you share it with other people how does it become more important uh, you know I, I think through lockdown we, we've all uh, gone through you know as I said everything this is the same but everything's different almost isn't it? Yeah. because we've all been changed by it and our value systems may have changed very slightly and, and we certainly have a little bit more respect for our own health etc and so sport I think uh, physical activity will really come back big time as as we uh, as we understand the importance of it and uh, you know like the 1920s it, a lot of money's been spent a lot of things gone on uh, we will come out of this uh, firing on all cylinders so i'm very mm. optimistic uh, well listen what what a great what a great place to to, to leave it Duncan. i mean, I mean you, we started this conversation talking about you're only as good as your worst day well thank you for giving us such a great listen Duncan, could you Thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you, Michael. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 